Thanks for tuning in to today's podcast. Please remember that all of the information in this podcast episode is limited to general information only. That means the information is not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So you should seek the advice of a licensed and trusted financial professional before acting on the information. And before you acquire or apply for a financial product, please read the PDS or product disclosure statement, which should be available on the issuer's website. Lastly, please keep in mind that past performance is not indicative of future performance. This episode of the Australian Investors Podcast features Jamie Nemsis, founder of the Inside Network and partner of Waddle Partners Financial Planning. Jamie and I met at the start of COVID in early 2020, after he reached out to me when the RAS business faced its biggest ever challenge. He and his partner Drew, who's been on the show before, were vital in supporting RASC and giving us a second chance at success. Since then, the RASC network has grown faster than I ever thought it would. Jamie's professional background is unlike any other I've come across. He grew up on a farm, growing fruit, and within a few years found himself running a financial planning firm at a young age. He then went on to take control of a very successful global events business, seeded an agricultural company that listed on the ASX, and most recently, through the Inside Network, Jamie established one of Australia's fastest-growing events businesses, specialising in high-quality investing and finance-related events. Jamie and I talk about building businesses, selling businesses, managers versus directors, financial advice, IPOs, and what it takes to succeed in events, PR, and financial planning. I'm almost certain this will be the first conversation of many with Jamie Nemsis of the Inside Network and Waddle Partners. Enjoy. Jamie, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure. It's always a pleasure to sit down and chat. This is going to be a bit of a different podcast because we're going to talk about your journey in financial planning, starting businesses, selling businesses, what makes a really good event, um, your latest events conference business is taking off. But to set the scene for everyone, um, I know you grew up on a farm. How did you go from farm to being involved in finance? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I suppose... Uh, I always love farming. I, I say that I've got uh, I've got dirt running through my veins, mm. and I grew up with a family of five. My dad um, was uh, always a farmer by mm-hmm. trade. It was a fruit salad farm, so we had lemons, apricots, uh, wine grapes, uh, dried fruit, and I got my brother was on the farm. I finished year twelve and did relatively well. And I said to mum, "Okay, I'm ready to come home on the farm." She said, oh, actually, we're having a bit of a tough time, um, so why don't you go to university? Hmm. And I thought, that's a fantastic idea. <laughs> and um, I went to university with no real plans of having a career because my career was going to be back on the farm. I decided not to do agri, and I thought um, I'd watched a movie the week before applying and thought bankers dress really well and I wanted to be a banker. So <laughs> okay. I did banking and finance at University of South Australia. So that was a three or four year course. Um, it was close to where I grew up, which was Merbein, three and a half hours. I could always travel home and mm-hmm. uh, see the family. Finished that course, went back to mum and said, all right, I've finished my degree now. Um, can I come back? And she said, no, still not doing that well. Uh, so I came down to Melbourne where my wife, well, now wife, she was finishing her uh, legal degree and I came down late. Um, so there was no real graduate positions available and I found this job 
that was for financial planning. Now, I never really thought I wanted to do financial planning, lots of face-to-face people. Mm. I was more wanting to do merchant banking. So I took this job, a relatively well-known planner in Carlton and that worked for a very big agency, top of the tables, and he had um, done some really interesting things, good and bad, through his career. Um, but at a young age, he entrusted me to run his planning business. So I think I was 22 and he wow. gave us gave me the opportunity to run his planning business and he concentrated on selling real estate to his client base. So he had mainly a medical practitioner client base and um, he got them through sales. So I learned a lot from this man in terms of how to sell um, and he was a, a sales machine. Now, ethically and morally, maybe we didn't get along, but you know, in terms of what it takes to build relationships and to sell to people um, is a really interesting thing that I learned really early. How did he market? How did he get that medical you know, client base? Yeah, so he, um, he did uh, – <laughs> it's quite funny. He did pizza and beer nights. Um, at, at universities and at hospitals for graduates. And basically, he always had a message. His message was, as a graduate uh, in the medical industry, you've been to university for plus 30 years. So mm-hmm. how are you going to protect yourself? So he sold, in the good old days, income protection insurance that paid 150% commission. <laughs> and he also sold superannuation. So selling, protect yourself, and then make sure you've got money once you finish your career. And... And pizza and beer. So it's just like a perfect combo, really. Um, and, it, and it's interesting that what that built, he did it year after year after year after year, is that you would get people that were 55 or 60 with a big lump sum that had trust for him because he did the right thing. They saw the right thing. They didn't mm. see all the commissions, the right thing. So he had this great kind of pipeline of clients by just doing pizza and beer and giving some really good information to, to, to medical practitioners. Um, and he was always, even though that everything was a sale, there was always a benefit, a clear benefit for the other side. Mm. So he would, you know, for a long period of time and where we eventually had a falling out was he would sell property, but he would also sell the insurance for the property mm. and he would, you know, make a clip on everything. And back then it wasn't disclosed. Yeah. It's actually, Quite an interesting story. We finally fell out because he was selling some property not far from where I lived. And it was townhouses, uh, 380,000 in Surrey Hills, 380,000 for townhouse. At that time, I thought, oh, this is a total ripoff. And he was getting four or 6% commission that was un, uh, undisclosed. And wow. I said, oh, you know, your client, um, the client will never do. You're not putting the client first. I drive past those townhouses now and they're worth uh, two and a half million dollars <laughs> and everyone that invested into, including his four or six percent commission, has done incredibly well. So at that time I was really young, uh, wanted a professional career, didn't love the sales element of it. So I started reading. Um, you know, today's version of podcast twenty five years ago was mm. to read. And I started reading a guy called Austin Donnelly. And Austin was really a critic of the financial planning industry, critic of the stockbroking industry, and and uh, wrote around fifty books. And hmm. I found there's a book called Sensible Share Investing, 
third issue and I really enjoyed it. And I decided that that was the type of firm I wanted to work for. So I found his um, firm, I called his firm, and they actually had an office about 800 metres from the office that I worked oh, at. Oh, cool. Uh, and I met a gentleman called uh, Ian Murdoch. Um, and Ian Murdoch was Austin's son-in-law. He ran a, a great wealth management business. And I asked him if I could go and work for him. And really, Ian is, um, uh, you know, I, I'd call him a mentor. He was mm. a phenomenal person to work with. Um, he then, I then bought into that business and I still run that business now. So that business was fee for service and independent. How the industry has changed 25 years later. And it initially, when I went in there, it was an hourly based, uh, financial planning firm. So this is very early in this concept that financial planning was a profession, not a sales mm. role. And it was hourly based. Eventually, hourly based didn't work because, you know, if you're going to do research on what's a hot stock today, Zip. So yep. if I sit down today with Zip and, you know, I interview relevant people, run some numbers, build my spreadsheet, and then decide Zip is a fantastic buy, um, then I call you up and say, hey, Owen, I've got an idea. Why don't you buy some Zip? Mm. How do I charge you for that? Do yeah. I charge you 20 minutes that it took or do I charge you an hour of the time or do I charge you the full time and then the next client I call up and say, hey, I've got an idea, it happens to be zip, do I charge them 20 minutes but do I charge you eight hours? Mm. So that firm really progressed from he had a great client base because he'd worked a, a, a long time in at PwC and he had lots of professional contacts. The Austin had the distribution, he had – you know, mm. the, the wide distribution. And then we, we eventually changed our fee structure to what it is today. And it's typically fixed fee. Yeah. Um, three year fixed fee at a set rate. Um, so that was, that was that. Um, you told, you, you spoke to me previously. Um, and you said when you were younger, cause this is still in your twenties, right? Yep. Uh, you, you spoke to me previously and you had this goal of, you know, you, you wanted to be successful. And you kind of had this idea in your mind that, um, you know, and people who know of you or have met you know that you started or you, you took over an events business and, and that went well. What, what was driving you to go from financial planning then to step off and do that? Was there something that happened in that financial planning like time of your life in, in that, I guess, period where you thought, you yeah, maybe I can try something else as well? Mm. Like how did you get to that next step? Yeah, as, as a financial planner, I, I haven't heard anyone speak about this. It, it's actually a very emotional business. So the emotion, uh, you know, five days a week, um, 10 hours a day can get to you. So that being, you know, if you've got 150 clients, a lot of times clients will come, come in not agreeing. So husband and wife won't agree. They'll come into the financial planner and they'll ask your opinion. Now, um, whatever you say, a lot of time goes. I don't have that power at home. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they're saying, what should we do, Jamie? Should we do this or should we do that? Typically, they haven't, and we'll talk about journey a little bit later. They've, yeah. they, they've, they've got off their journey. So they, they've either retired at, say, 55 and they don't have enough capital and, you know, there's a dip in the market and they want to know what to do. So... And there's the old saying that, you know, when markets go up, it's the market. And when, you know, 
so when, when portfolios go up, it's the market, and when the portfolio goes down, it's your advisor. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of – and I'd spent 10 years really building a business, and I was like, well, what else can I build? And how do I – there was a point in the GFC where everything was going pear-shaped, and we had bought the best research from a lot of groups about who to use and what stocks to buy, mm. and everything was falling 70 or 80%. Some of the research companies were going belly up, and you're going, well, how do I, how, how do I have fiduciary obligations to my client? I'm using third parties to research, but, you know, they failed and disappeared. And I, I still get calls from Betty at uh, eight at night saying, Jamie, will my money be okay? Yeah. So I was probably on a search for a better answer. And, um, the Ian Murdoch's wife was Melda Donnelly. Melda Donnelly had this business that kind of shared offices with us. It was separated, but we shared a kitchen. And Melda, if anyone that has ever met Melda will know that uh, the quality of businesswoman she is. And she's been on, you know, she was uh, part of QIC and uh, a number of uh, superannuation funds, and she still is. And she's an exceptional businesswoman. And she ran a business called Centre for Invest Education. What they did is conferences... Um, for the pension fund industry only. And I had previewed it from a, from afar. And then I decided to get involved in that business. Now that business was very much dependent on Melda. Melda knew everyone. Um, it, there was lots of key man risk. So to buy that business, there was a lot of risk. Mm. Um, of course, price always comes into it and you know, a lot of risk, a lot of the price. So then I went on this journey of kind of sourcing uh, education and knowledge. So I went from a wealth management industry into the, um, into the institutional industry. And then we ran conferences, um, across C-suite, um, which was left to right, so CIO, CEOs, chairs, um, and then we ran down through asset classes, so fixed income, equities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was a great learning curve for me because we we took the key man risk out, even though we couldn't replicate a Melda Dolly, but then we added depth and research. So mm. we hired five or six analysts that said, all right, we won't just be the conveyors of the conferences will also be the thinkers. You know, we'll make sure the agenda is cutting edge. We'll provide some ideas you haven't thought of before. And that was, and then we ran conferences all over the world, you know, New York and Istanbul. And I got to meet, you know, five or six Nobel Prize winners. And we heard mm. really good and deep thinkers and built relationships, built networks. So, mm. you know, we have, let's say, friends um, and colleagues right around the world now. So it was a really important part of my journey. The business was always incredibly strong. So we would run an event and we would – so on one side there was thought leadership. On the other side there was a need of fund managers and leading fund managers to meet everyone within the pension fund industry. Mm. You know, we, we talked about it and still do as um, – fish and sharks you know <laughs> so you know the fish come to feed on really good information and peers and networking and sharks want to build the relationships to, yeah. to to sell a mandate all in an environment of thought leadership uh so we were able to do that in a, in a really smart way <clears throat> we we ended up selling that business to euro money um and the reason we sold it 
was we didn't quite understand the perpetual nature of that business. So people would come along and sponsor mm. and participate, but they the the next step wasn't necessarily available, you know. So the next time I would talk with the head of um, head of marketing or the CEO was to sell the next event. So we weren't necessarily a part of something bigger. We were just the little bit. Yeah. And we always thought the little bit would fall away. Um, so we, someone came along, knocked on our door, offered us a multiple, and we went, yeah, okay, because we couldn't see how it was the essential part of, um, of the whole network. So, Whereas now you probably look at that and you think maybe that thinking was a mistake because it's still here today. People still need distribution. Still, people still need to get that network with the funds. And yeah. do, 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 you, do you feel that way? Like, do you regret selling it at all? Um, the, you know, there's a long, there's a long journey there. The, the sale didn't go that great. It ended up in a legal battle. You know, um, and uh, I learned. You know, my life has been uh, about learning, and you know, it learned me lots of things. Mm. It taught me lots of things about myself, about dealing with big corporates on a, you know, on a sale, and what does that mean? Um, being passionate about something, but then wanting to sell that passion for a lump sum amount. Yeah. Uh, I so I don't regret anything. Um, you know, sometimes I is what it is. Different, you know. It's uh, get up and go again and try to learn from your mistakes. And I think when I still love being a financial planner and still practice you know, every day, but essentially I'm different than most financial planners. Most financial planners are grown up by being the admin assistant, para planner, then a financial planner. Um, their experience is outside the desk is very minimal. Where mine is exceptional mm. uh, in terms of breadth and knowledge, you know, sold a conference business to the to the largest conference company in the world, um, mm. able to grow that kind of uh, fivefold. Um, after that, I don't know if this is where you want to take the podcast um, and having, but I'm going to go there anyway. <laughs> My um, the the need for me to always do something in agriculture was really big. Yeah. So I um my mum and dad still had their 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 property. So I acquired that property, and then um with a business partner we grew that quite substanti- substantially. It went from you know four hundred thousand dollars of turnover to nearly ninety million dollars over a five year period. Wow. Um. How did you we, how did you do that? Well, we well the. The industry was on its knees, so we were able to acquire dried fruit properties and wine properties and convert them into organic dried fruit and then build a sales um, network around the world. And the sales network was uh, was built by just, you know, lots of shoe leather, knocking on doors saying, hey, we've got this exceptional product, we're from Australia, and first, you know, the first sale globally was... We had this problem where we bought all these properties and we had so much dried fruit, the domestic market wasn't able to take organic dried fruit to the same scale we could produce it. Mm. So we had to go offshore. And then when we went offshore, we saw that there was a real need as well. So the industry had the right shape to it. And then we you know, we grew really quickly and it was a capital-intensive business. We ended up listing on the ASX now I would say that was a mistake because um, we, you know, we were told and convinced from um, lots of people that it was an EBITDA story. Um, you know, it was a profit story. 
But essentially, we were four to five years from being where we needed to be. And sure, it was an EBITDA story, but it wasn't the whole story. So therefore, when we listed, everyone expected a certain amount of profit, a certain amount of in an industry, you know, people, a lot of people say agriculture shouldn't be listed on the ASX, um, because it, earnings are very hard to forecast. So we were probably 150 million short of the capital we needed to execute. And we didn't, we had the opportunity to raise that at float, but you know, everyone's worried about the value of their shares and dilution and whatever. Mm. You know, it was oversubscribed seven times. Mm. And then we, um, and then it kind of, you know, lots of learnings there about when, and this is what I think I can provide to clients is, you know, when do you take private money? When is pre-IPO appropriate? You know, mm. What is exit? And then um, lots of learnings around independent directors and what independent directors are and how different from what I thought directors are. What did you, what did you think that they were? I always think a board is there not for governance but to help especially growing businesses, you know, roll up your sleeves, get involved. Um, if you've got expertise or knowledge or relationships, provide that to your executive team. Where, you know, post en- Enron, it was really three independents. Those independents stand off from everyone else and essentially they're there um, for only governance reasons. But, you know, good governance and being good director in conflict, I think, at the moment, and you see that a lot. Um and then there's a you know there was a whole transaction and we ended up a long story you know a major shareholder wanted to influence the outcome and decided there was a better management team than uh, myself and my business partner pushed pushed us out and then we rolled that board and then another shareholder came over top um so you good learnings not a great outcome in terms of where that business is today um but yeah again um would it have been different if you hadn't listed? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was a private equity bid um, while we were listing, um, which was saying, you know, they were saying we needed more capital. We didn't take that. One of the many mistakes, we didn't take the private equity. And then um, I just think the messaging, you know, when you're really young, I was like, even, it wasn't that many years ago, I was a lot, lot younger. Um, and this kind of concept that you're going through a listing and, you know, it's, uh, you'll be on the board and, you know, you have your own mm. code. It's really exciting. Um, but, you know, we, if we, you know, when we do it again, cause I'm sure I'll be involved in public markets all my life, there's a whole different process. It probably sh- should have had another 50 to $70 million worth of private capital into it before it was listed and it probably needed to be diversified Mm. so saying that it's very hard to tell your corporate advisor or your stockbroker or anyone that's Mm. in that realm anyone that's in that realm because they're all bested you know the broker is going to earn three or four million dollars out of your float your independents all want 100 grand a year to be on your board there's you know there's lots of people that won't tell you the truth because it's all vested you know and Essentially, um, that's where we fell. Well, I fell in the trap. I thought everyone, you know, kind of thought like me, and there was a, mm. a common goal. So, um, were you, just quickly, were you when just we just backpedal us a little bit? When you started this business with your business partner, you still had the financial planning business. It almost seems like you've had two businesses at least on the go at any one time. Yeah, yeah, very much so. We had. Um, 
we had three. So wealth management, which you know, my current now business partner, Drew Meredith, was a part of um, mm. in wealth management. We had a bigger team. Uh, so that, that that was fine. The conference business was in there and um, and also this Murray River Organics. So it, yep. my mind could work across the three. Um, lots of people were conflicted. But saying that there's a lot of great business people in the world that have run multiple businesses, you know, if you can mm. run... Um, if you can run Apple and Pixar at the same time, you can run drive through a business, a conference business, and a world <laughs> business. I think. Yeah. Um, so, but do you think it would have been different if you only had one focus? Uh, no. So, w- if you were looking at a company and you were looking at um, the management team, would you give them um, credit for running for being on more than one board or running more than one business, or would you say that that's com- like a conflict? Ah, uh, I think. So there's two things. Uh, I think you always have to look at the depth of your team and the role that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the wealth business at that time, I wasn't playing a real role. I was on the investment committee. I introduced some clients, but I had a team. The wealth in the agricultural business, um, I thought we created a very unique team, um, a very unconventional but a very unique team. You know, mm. uh, The... Organic farming is very unique to itself. You know, it's a totally different way to think about things. So I think you need to look at the quality of the team. Um, when it comes to boards and multiple board positions, there is just some people that have exceptional, exceptional ability to add value. And I think those people should be on multiple boards. There's other people that are just ticking, you know, mm. post-professional career, ticking their, um, their independent um, director boxes and getting five or six pieces of remuneration. I, I, I don't rate them. Mm. You know, uh, I think the the good thinkers should have multiple roles. Mm. How about for you personally? You know this whole thing with the the, the listed company um, not ending the way that you wanted it to. How did you take that personally? Yeah, it's a um, you know I think uh, the. Uh, trials and tribulations of business is um, is really interesting. Um, I didn't um, obviously upset me greatly. Um, being a business that we took from my family's business, my fam- mum and dad's business, and then turning it into something. Why we created that um, in the first place, and why I was passionate about going back to Mildura. Mildura was in the middle of a drought. You know, lots of people unemployed, and it was kind of a view that if we could go back there and create a business that would employ people and help them pay their mortgages, it had to be a positive thing. And if mm-hmm. we did that with a nice kind of green overlay of organic farming and taking farms, you know, vineyards, wine vineyards that were non-profitable that were going to die off anyway and convert them into something that was a bright spark for the Central Asia area. That was the real mission, you know, and, and I suppose, um, the way that we've, I've started thinking about that is what came out positively from that experience. And I think that paying a lot of people's mortgages or helping them pay their mortgages is a big thing. Um, relationships and, you know, pushing forward in an, an area where, Agriculture wasn't really growing and now it's growing. Um, there's lots of positives to bring out of it. Um, and just keep going, you know, surrounded by some really good people and, and, and friends and, you know, able to go, all right, what's next thing? And it's hard to give up. 
um, mm. some of you've started and listed. It probably shouldn't have been started or listed, you know, in the, in the, in the it should, probably shouldn't have been listed in the first place. Um, yeah. people make that decision, you know, to be big or small. Um, and did you feel like you had to be big? Uh, probably the environment I was in, there was always, uh, you know, it had to be bigger and better. Yeah. Um, and there was a critical point where we had to, well, had to, there was a piece of pie that we wanted that made us really, really important globally and domestically. And we chased that piece of pie. It happened to be, it's the biggest dried fruit farm, probably. It's, it's definitely the biggest dried fruit farm in Australia. Um, it could be one of the biggest in the world. And we needed that piece. And we probably, that's when we started to need external capital. So we got that on place, needed external capital. That was on a pre- premise of pre-IPO and then you know, yeah, that's right. when it kind of was like wasn't better down. In hindsight, maybe it went a bit hard on, you know, some of the conversion techniques. But um, it's, you know, that – so I haven't answered your question, but, you know, you, you learn a lot about people and not to be negative, there's a lot of people that, <laughs> you know, use everything they possibly can for their own interests and and only their interests so um that that probably taught me about being a bit more guarded and not trusting um as many people as i used to do you think everyone do you think that's more prevalent in public markets than private markets so what i mean is that you've started quite a few or ran quite a few private businesses Mm. built significant wealth out of that and you've also been you know involved in public markets whether it's through financial planning but also through your own means do you think it's easier when I say easier it's more transparent you know people's incentives you can have permanent capital in private markets and therefore it makes life a bit easier for you Mm. yeah I don't know if my experience allows me to answer that totally Um, I think there's really smart ways to grow small businesses Um, and there's there's a time to be listed Um, both in terms of uh, the your company's life cycle and also your life cycle, you know, there's some good examples of great CEOs and great founders the second time around doing it really well. Mm. Um, uh, first time around, they learned a lot, and you know, it's kind of um, so. I think private markets, public markets have got a place. Public markets. Um, We'll talk about it a bit later, but the you know you can have really good management and a really poor stock, um, and you can have and, and not being and the market doesn't rep- doesn't see that, and vice versa. You can have really really poor management in a great stock, yeah, in terms of share price, and people still rate that. You know the ability to rank management from a third party's point of view, from a fund manager's point of view, I think it's incredibly incredibly hard. Um, for them to do that. So. Mm. Mm. I tend to agree and I think that's the part that oftentimes people – and I know that this happens to be of private investors because they don't have access to management. I mean, we only get what's on the annual report, right, or we see them in an interview every now and again and how much can you really know about someone unless you've yes. met them face-to-face, see how they operate with their colleagues or subordinates, right? Yeah, even, you know, you, you talk to a lot of these small cap managers and they'll say, hey, we do 300 company visits 
what's the definition of a company visit and what do you say? You know, you can yeah. make anything shiny if you shine it enough for people to come in and go, oh, okay, this is what we do. So the ability for a fund manager to really fundamentally understand what's under the hood is more than a company visit, you know, yeah. ushered into the boardroom, 25 minutes, some kind of promotional film. So, you know, I, I don't think um, fund managers have that much more advantage than individual investors like the people that subscribe to your podcast. And companies historically have been bad at telling the true story of what they do. You can just see that the recent set of numbers that have come out in the Australian market for reporting, they don't necessarily tell you everything you need to know. You know, it's supposed to be full disclosure. They'll highlight the positives and downplay the negatives Hmm. and... You know, that's not what, as investors, we should be getting. We should be just being told the truth. You know, they're not there in a sales role. They're there as basically the guardian of your wealth in a way, as a CEO or a chair, to tell us the good and the bad. And, you know, don't worry about if the share price goes up tomorrow or down. You know, essentially, investors are normally in for the long term and they want to know that there is issues with parts that are being addressed and that there's also positive areas. Um, so I think there's still a lot of honest disclosure to go in the Australian market. I think globally there's a lot of um, – it will change over time. Mm. Let's talk about the next step or more recent step for you, which was um, starting Inside Network. That's how I came to be involved with you and, mm. and learnt about what you do. Um, so, so post uh, the conference business being sold and uh, being in wealth management – uh, so conference business being sold and then exiting um, the agriculture business. I had some time off and then I went back to our wealth business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was clear in that wealth management business there was a network that was needed, a network of, of like-minded advisors. The industry was changing. The Royal Commission hadn't happened, but it was about to. And I turned up to a number of events in wealth management different to the events that I ran in the institutional market and saw that we were being talked to or down to. You know, a fund manager would pitch their views or a company would be pitching their views. There was no really peer-to-peer interaction where I was talking to my other principals or, or colleagues talking about how to construct portfolios, what is the best idea in here, how do you get the fee structures, and financial planners have been through the ringer. But, you know, there's a tradition, a typical financial planner doing the right thing has got enormous amount of obligations on them, um, both legally and, you know, kind of um, emotionally, but they don't earn a lot of money. You know, financial planners don't earn a lot of money. They've made a lot of billionaires. You know, the mm. Platinums and the Magellans are all made because financial planners support their product that, you know, that they charge substantial fees for, 1.5%. No financial planner charges 1.5%. So I think the, the idea that we were, I was now back on the tools providing financial planning advice but there was still something missing. There was still this kind of network that I wanted to have with my peers of running the best financial planning firms that possibly we could run and sharing ideas and views and being proud of where I started my career, which was as a financial planner. So what could I do to help that? And that kind of sprung 
we were also in a in in a um, in a period where we wanted to promote ourselves, and I started talking to PR firms um, about you know how do we get into financial review and how do we get more press, and um, one thing led to another, and there was a availability to buy a PR firm, and you know we thought that that was a good idea to buy that PR firm. Can that- you explain how the, like the economics of a PR business works? Because I was new to this, so how you know the PR business makes money, how you Judge a good PR firm from a you know poor one. How, yeah, so traditional. It? Let's talk about traditional PR, uh, typically used by companies to for their communication needs. So that could be internal communication, it could be external communication, and then their ability to get the message across. Now, before digital, before guys like you, it was <laughs> a lot easier. It was it was judged on how many times you got in a financial review. So you would produce a press release if it was with fund manager. You would send it out to your 130 contacts with the journalists. You would call each journalist and say, hey, this is a really interesting story and this is why. Do you want to meet the CEO or the fund manager? And then suddenly it would be um, in the financial review and that would be a tick for your PR firm to that mm-hmm. company. You can then, you could then overlay that with advertising and you could overlay that with paid articles and you could overlay that with radio. So it's really what is your content communication plan over the next 12 months and how do you execute that and then how do you measure that? Of course, now we're in digital well, the world has changed. So the old and why we were able to buy a PR firm relatively cheap is because PR has changed and you know PR is more about how do you get that message across financial review on a Tuesday is probably eight or ten pages you know so (laughs) how do you and people are are digesting content a lot differently than they are they did just five years ago so we thought there was a great opportunity to go all right how do you solve the communication riddle of firms to their end user or their stakeholders by using traditional but also multi-laying it and then so that that that's through digital right that's through mm. making sure that you have a, a digital presence that you're using podcasts that you know you you're getting real feedback even if you're in the fin review and they print their hundred thousand copies how many people actually read that article and attribute it to yourself where digital, and I mean, you're a king of this, Owen, so you'll know <laughs> if you write an article and send it out to 100,000 people, you know exactly how many people have clicked. You actually know who's clicked. You know how long they've stayed. Have they forwarded mm. it on? Have they revisited? You know, that's all really powerful information, which, you know, for some PR firms is confronting as well because, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> if you go, oh, only 200 people read that article and it costs you X amount, so there, and it's changing every day. You know, every day, and we've seen that with the media rules just in the last week. Every day, digital PR and marketing changes, and I think it's a really exciting thing to be a part of. So we did that, and then when we bought it, we had a couple of publications, and we thought, well, let's push those publications out. So if we want to communicate to like-minded people, either as investors or advisors or the institutional market, let's do it through one-to-many formats. And that, that those one-to-many formats is publications. Yeah. So now we launched a business called Inside Network about 18 months ago, and it starts by communicating through with newsletters, Inside Investor. 
Insight Advisor and Investor Strategy News, which is talking to a specific audience. Hmm. So, yeah, right. So, so this was just a, before this was just before COVID, right? Yeah. And and okay. And then does this and then this ties in with the the events side of the business as well, right? Yeah. So we think about helping. So helping a PR firm or a client of the PR firm, helping them get access to the right audience. So how do you get access to the right audience? First, you want to engage your audience. You want to give them really honest information. You want to give them mm. ideas and tips and feedbacks. So you can do that in many formats. You can do it through publications, which, which you do as well. Mm-hmm. And you can do it through so one to many, and then you can do it one to a few. So really good events. And of course, uh, the old business CIE ran the best events, I think, in the world. Um, so this, this concept, you can do it through events and then you can do it rather than one to a few. You can do it one to one. Yeah. So in terms of building these communities out of investors, like-minded investors, like-minded advisors, like-minded institutional investors, then it's got lots of elements to it. So are we broadcasting messages? Are we engaging in podcasts and videocasts? Are we attending conferences? Because face-to-face is still the best format of building a relationship and building trust. And once you build a relationship and trust, um, it it allows you not just to do business, but it allows you to take the information in a lot easier than if you don't have yeah, you don't have that trust. Mm. That's one thing that I hear from a lot of fundies. They say to me, you know, how can we get in front of this person? How can we get in front of that person? A lot of them just don't have a network, right? They just don't have the distribution or the, the means. And traditionally, the only way to get in front of so many advisors would be to go through the gatekeepers who provide research. Mm. And in the first, as you know, in the first three years, very few of those gatekeepers provide research or allow you to you know, market yourself as a recommended product and, and mm. so on and so forth. How did you, how did, because I know your business started, all of these businesses kind of came together just before COVID. Yeah. And that was pretty scary, right? I remember walking into this office on the first day and I was the only one in the office and you guys were all working from home. But then within three to six months, you managed to adapt to that environment. Can you explain how you did that? I mean, there's some good learnings about being overconfident. And, you know, I was overconfident <laughs> that a conference business, I've run them before and, you know, they're, I think conference businesses need to be big um, rather than small and there's an enormous amount of small conference businesses out there. You know, you need a very good events team. You need a very good content team. And then to execute an event, you need, you know, lots of, people to do that um so we geared up with lots of people Mm. and uh, had a plan across those three pools of capital to execute and then of course COVID came along and Mm. wrecked that we haven't retrenched anyone so we've kept everyone that wanted to stay um what we we needed to find you know and it's a it's a word that everyone's sick of but yeah we needed to find a pivot we needed to say yeah. well how do we do this um obviously our publications were okay because they were digital the pr firm was doing really well because people understood that they needed to communicate in a different way but the physical events weren't available so we um was actually a a guy that joined me in the Sydney office um, called Jason Darmody. And Jason Darmody is a phenomenal salesperson. He understands sales better than I've met, especially telephone sales, which is a skill that most people mm. 
left. And he came from the uh, tech industry and uh, in the UK and he came back to Sydney, he wanted to live in Sydney, and uh, we hired him. And he said, oh, you've, you've got to see this product called Meet the Boss. It's um, And what it is, five kind of thought, five peers either CEO level or investor level and someone that's got an idea and someone that's selling them the idea over hosted or over chaired by a chair. And at the time he was talking about this product and this is probably November 2019. He was talking about this product called Zoom. (laughs) There's no way people will jump on a Zoom for an hour and, and, and be really open and honest. And I said, I was nice to him. I said, yeah, it's, Nice concept, Jason. We might think about launching it in last quarter of 2021, which is still not here yet. Um, cause, you know, some fund managers do want to get their message across. And so we pivoted to that, which has been phenomenal. So this, uh, and it's a phenomenal product. It's called Inner Circles. We run it in the wholesale and institutional market where you get five financial planners, uh, five to six financial planners or, or asset consultants or, people on the investment committee together to talk about a specific issue hosted by Jimmy Dunn, James Dunn. He, he typically is the host and he, he makes sure everyone is included. So it's not a one-way conversation. It's like a two-way conversation. Everyone can ask anyone else a question and it's using everyone's knowledge to leverage better outcomes for their clients. So it's it's been a really good product for us. We will keep that product now or at service or part mm. of engaging and um, then just all the usual stuff, you know, lower your overheads, work really hard. And my mum always said that, you know, harder you work, I'm sure she stole it as well, harder you work, luckier you get. So we work really hard. Everyone worked hard in our team to mm. say we're a really new business but we've got some new ideas and you can engage with people different a different way. Mm. And that's, that's similar to events. You know, events haven't really, in financial services, you will go to, you know, um, that being the Australian Investors Association, Australian Shareholders Association of Switzerland, and you'll sit there and you'll listen. You won't necessarily um, be able to engage both ways. So if you can engage both mm. ways, and the tech industry does it incredibly well. If you be if you go to a tech conference, it, the engagement is both ways all day long. So we're looking to leverage off what the tech industry has done in events and conferences, and bring it to bring it to the financial industry mm. um i think we've got off the topic again but yeah <laughs> so <laughs> no it's it's fascinating because um we're going to host some events later this year 2021 together um focusing on in- investing related content and just hearing and speaking with your team you get the sense that you know they've done it all before right like they've been around around the track a few times what makes a good event for investors versus one that's not you said one is it just that open dialogue back and forth or what are some of the more creative things that you've done i think it's um it's relationships so everyone wants to build a relationship either you're a buyer or a seller but you still want to build a relationship yeah. and then you want to be able to take that information and think about how you can use it you know so there's lots of information around but are you going to include it in your portfolio so if i'm a Long short Aussie equity manager and I say, well, I've got the best product, you know, the beta zero, I've done this. How do I use you? You know, where does it fit? And is other people comfortable with fitting you there? And who do you, who are you surrounded by? 
So this quality information, so rather than quantity information, quality information is really important. And I think that's important. So, you know, work and play. So there's a, there's a lot of work, but there's a bit of, bit of fun involved. You know, I think that's a better learning environment. Mm. Um, to get multiple opinions. So to be able to ask people on the table, what are they doing and where are they seeing it? To find peers that are, that are like-minded. They're all really important things. Um, uh, the venue, everything matters, you know, from the start to end. So when I first, um, for CIE, the lady there, Melda Donnelly, sat me down and said, all right, here's the process from, from the start of an event to the end of the event. And there was like 720 processes to, to <laughs> do on her. And she was, her, her interests, um, she had attention to detail like I've never seen before. For example, if you're doing a, uh, you know, we ran slightly different conferences for the institutional market, but if you're doing a conference in Yarra Valley, then make sure someone is there in the morning if you're all having breakfast to check the size of the muffet. You know, if you're trying to build a relationship with someone, you've got a great big muffin, you crack it and it goes everywhere, then suddenly there's a lot more pressure on you, right? <laughs> or the size of the apples. Or she had so many rules that so many specific, not rules, but things that she learned through her journey that she passed on to us that's really, really important. You know, if you're flying in from, into, from, uh, from, from an, another country, then make sure there's a fresh fruit bowl in their room. You know, make sure that there's mints and water on the tables. Make sure they're comfortable seats. You're expecting someone to stay there for that long. You know, sit in one room for eight hours. Make sure there's just, there's so much to a really good event. Um, and it's deep. Now we don't have 730 processes. We, we have a lot, but you know, it's, it, it's about making sure that everything is perfect and then when people walk away they've got relationships they've got knowledge they've got something that will really amplify their um their experience now <clears throat> i want to mention that wealth management and my wealth management business or our wealth management business is very much uh, high net worth individuals now we look after everyone but it's a fee attached and that fee's got to be appropriate so why you and i have kind of got a relationship is that there's an enormous amount of people um, that need to essentially seek better financial outcomes, but they can't necessarily do it through advisors. Mm. So how do you get this information? And, you know, what we saw, and I'm really new to podcasts, but, you know, podcasts and videocasts and events, they're changing. Where five years ago they were always a seller. If you went to an event, be expected to be sold to from the start to the end. Mm. Now there's a lot more people and you're kind of leading this charge of, hey, I'll help you with quality information. I'll help you from not making as many mistakes. And this is a conversation you and I have had before where we, well, I, I always say that most people, it will be okay. They'll be able to retire if mm. they follow the right process. And that's, and then they don't make any mistakes. And one of the fundamental things that I think I can provide to clients, or I can provide, is don't make mistakes along the way. And then same as your broadcast, what you're doing is trying to help people not make those mistakes. And, you know, if you, if you just 
uh, go through life and you in a very traditional manner and you you know find your love and you buy the house that's the right price and then you contribute to super and you send your kids to the right school and you, you do all the right things you don't overgear you don't get involved in schemes and <laughs> you know you get to 65 you'll live a really comfortable retirement the problem is is who's guiding the majority of people we wrote a book once that sold a lot but you know uh, I really envy what you're doing for the end user because you, you're essentially changing their life. And if they avoid the mistakes, then they get to 65 or whenever retirement is these days, <laughs> uh, 70 in a lot better position. So, mm. oh, well, thanks for thank you. I appreciate the kind words, mm. mate. Um, yeah, I just I do because so one of the questions I asked the other night when we were out at uh, your uh, it was a jazz bar. Yeah. yeah, down here in Melbourne, um, if you're near a good jazz bar, I know one. Um, we're out and you said, I asked you, I said, you know, you've done really well for yourself, starting businesses, selling businesses, uh, still owning businesses. Why don't you retire? Um, and uh, not necessarily just go, go away and just enjoy your money, but it, the answer that you gave me was really interesting. Tell me what that was. <laughs> well, we're a few, a few drinks in, but you said that you were so fearful of having to just worry about your investment portfolio, whereas at least while you're working, there's money coming in um, and you don't have to worry about you know, what your kids hmm. are going to have to worry about in 20 years because you can solve that problem with money. Do you recall that conversation at all? No, I totally recall it. I think you know this honour of being a financial planner is um, – quite unique because people come to us at 60 or 65 and they say, here, Jamie, or Drew, that, you know, I think is an actual better planner than I am, but they say, this is every cent I've ever earned. Um, and this is my, I've got inheritance, I've got windfalls, I've got superannuation, this is every dollar. Now I'm 60, 65, it needs to last. I can never top it up. Mm. Now that is enormous amount of pressure that I talked to talked about this emotional state of financial planners that mm. you go well you know the, the worst thing is to see a super healthy 65 year old come in because you know they're probably going to live to <laughs> 40 years right finite pool of capital for 40 years and you rarely find mm. people where the income that they need from their portfolio isn't directly re- related to the size of their portfolio sometimes you do walk into it but most of the time the income retu- requirement from their portfolio is substantially more than the portfolio can produce yep. so suddenly you're in a position of falling capital now falling capital in falling markets incredibly scary being there before right you know you get drawdowns you've got to draw down eight percent portfolios only producing four and you get some corrections it, it it's it's mm. a yeah, you know, it's a big obligation. Now for me, um post you know those businesses and I, I spent some time just thinking about life and I think I, I love work. I love mm. the ability to engage with people and I engage with knowledge and you know, obviously it has has fruits of uh labor in terms of making money or losing money or whatever. But I think it's it's that journey that I really enjoy and the ability to share really good advice and change people's lives um by not 
and, and we're not talking about making them millionaires versus not being millionaires, but, you know, guiding people is the addiction. And I think it's the addiction for most financial planners, you know, the ability to go into the room and have the, the people on the other side be guided by you is, is, is an addiction. Mm. I think I've learned so much, and you said before about how did what did I cope with? You know that business that didn't go that well on the ASX. I just now think I've got great knowledge, and that knowledge can be shared from businesses like yourself, you know, growing businesses to people that have a finite pool of capital and they're confused about, you know, how do they manage that and 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 how much risk to take and you know how much should be in cash and. Um, mm. I, I just feel that if, if at any point in my career I've got more knowledge now, now I've got lots of scars learning all that knowledge, right? But if you think about the things I've done, you know, selling businesses to multinationals, listing ASX companies, buying and selling businesses, pivoting our business through COVID, um, then I think that's a unique skill base that I, I want to share. Um, mm. To the right people, um, and I think people meeting you know that too, right? That you're 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 focused. I I would say meeting you, it, you gave me a new appreciation for being focused on growth and getting things done, like getting deals done, going out there and just giving it a crack. And I hadn't come across that before. Um, and then that's when we started talking about doing a recording like this because I was fascinated to sit to get it from your perspective, what it takes to grow businesses, to scale businesses, to sell them, to have things fail, to have things succeed and everything in between. I just think it's a it's a really interesting journey that you've been on. Mm. Yep. Um, somewhat stressful, but, you know, uh, I've got, you know, three kids and you, you want them to be proud of you and, um, you know, we've always had really good workplaces. You know, a lot of the people that have worked for me before on their own businesses, which hopefully I've been an influence and, you know, again, paying that mortgage and building a better life for themselves is, is pretty important, I think. Mm. Um, and I am 45, so I see myself halfway through my career. You know, mm. I want to work every last day until I'm 65 and, you know, probably started uh, mid-20s. So it's, um, yeah, I'll learn a lot more over the next, uh, I think that's important too, you know, this concept that you can always learn more um, mm. and then apply it slightly differently and COVID's taught us all that. You can do it differently and, and um yeah, just have a go, I think, is the main mm. Hopefully, and I suspect they will, a lot of our listeners will get to meet you at um, at our events that we host in the back half of the year. It's looking like there'll be one in Melbourne and Sydney. Um, but I think this was a good introduction to, to the backstory um, behind you, Jamie, and the businesses that you've built. There's a lot we haven't covered and a lot that we can cover in person and when we catch up again because there's, you know, we can talk about all of those things on the 700-point checklist. Yeah. Uh, we can talk about how, you know, things can get derailed in financial planning, how you look at funds, how you, you know, scale a business, how you, what you look for in, in teams. You've, these are all things that you've passed on to me already. Yeah. Um, just walking around the office. So, yeah, I guess this is a, this is a fitting way to end it. It's, it's, a, it's good just to, to talk to you and to introduce you to the audience before we have those, those events. Um, and I'm sure you'll be back on the podcast soon. Yeah, thanks, Owen. A real honour. And uh, yeah, my passion, my overall passion is still financial planning. So if uh, happy to come back and talk about anything at any point. So cool. thanks, mate.